Good morning again. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 14, we'll be bringing this great chapter of God's Word to a close this morning. And if you've been with us over these last couple weeks, we've seen in John chapter 14 the continuation of what we also call the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse where Jesus has gathered together his disciples in his final hours before his brutal death and crucifixion. He's gathered them together into this upper room and he's preparing them for his coming death and departure. And we've talked about even how this is called sometimes a farewell discourse. It has a structure to it, right? That before a master or before a teacher prepares to depart from his disciples, he gives this farewell discourse where he prepares his people for what life will be like after he leaves, after his departure. We see this in the Old Testament with someone like Moses, and we're seeing this pattern repeated in the upper room discourse where Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure. He promises them the coming of the Spirit, that they will not be left alone, that they will have the comforter, the helper to be with them forever. And we've seen in this chapter these wonderful promises of the Spirit being sent by the Father and the Son, these promises of the new covenant that God will dwell with His people. He will make His home among them. He will write the law upon their very hearts. He will put His Spirit within them. He will teach them all things. And as we spoke about last week, He will give them His perfect peace. Right? These are these great promises that were spoken of in the Old Testament, experienced by Old Testament saints, but fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our Lord has been preparing His people and, and comforting them in their sorrow, in their sadness, that even though He is about to depart from them, that they don't need to fear. They don't need to be troubled because He will be present with them. And in fact, what we're going to see today in our passage is that his departure from them should not only remove their fear and their worry and their sorrow, but should actually be a cause for their rejoicing. It should actually be a cause for them to be glad, for them to be comforted and to delight. But as we're going to see with the disciples that are often like us, they don't understand what our Lord is saying. They're focused on earthly things. They're focused on their present circumstances, and they're not able to see what our Lord is speaking about. But what we're going to see today is that our Lord points His people, He points His disciples, and by implication, us, not only to the joy and comfort that God's people have in the finished work of Christ, but to the greater glory that is ahead. The greater glory that is to come. The glory of heaven, the glory of the triune God, and the glory of the incarnate Son of God and His work for His people. And even though we're going to see in these verses some phrases that might confuse us, 
and that have actually been used by heretics to deny the doctrine of the Trinity and to undermine the deity of Christ, these verses, far from giving any grounds to heretics or error, actually point us to the glory of Christ's incarnation and the glory of our triune God. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word this morning. I'm going to begin at verse 27 and read to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of the Lord. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy, infallible, and inerrant word that you have given to us, your people, inspired by your Holy Spirit, written down for the preserving and propagating of the truth. And as we come this morning to your word, we come to not the words of men, but the words of the living God, that as we hear your word speak, It is indeed you who speaks to us through your word. And so we pray this morning as we come and as we come to this great chapter of your word that we would be confronted with our proneness, our proclivity to look to the things of the earth and look to our current circumstances. And that as we see your word and the finished work of Christ, our eyes would be lifted to heaven even this morning as we look to the things that are unseen. We pray that you would be with us this morning and that you would illumine the eyes of our hearts as we seek to understand and believe your word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to look at three different things this morning. First, we're going to look in verse 28 at the comfort of Christ. The comfort of Christ. Secondly, at the end of verse 28, we'll look at the glory to come. The glory to come. And then finally, in verses 29 through 31, we'll look at the conquering of Satan. The conquering of Satan. We see first the comfort of Christ. In verse 28, our Lord brings His disciples, as we've spoken about so often, these words of comfort. These words of comfort that they so greatly need, and He points them to these heavenly realities. Jesus, as we've said so many times, he's not ignorant of how the disciples feel. He knows that they're troubled in heart. He knows that they're afraid. He knows that they're shaking 
as they contemplate and thinking about what life will be like after Christ's departure. He knows the grief and sadness that they have as they think about these things. And so he comes to his disciples and he speaks to them these words of comfort, reminding them of what he had said, consoling them in their grief and pointing them to the glory ahead. And that his departure, far from being a cause of sorrow, should actually cause them to rejoice. We read this in verse 28. He said, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. You would have rejoiced. That our Lord here first reminds his disciples of what he had said to them. This is going all the way back to verses 2 and 3 of John chapter 14 where he said, I am going away. I am going to prepare a place for you. I will leave you. And where I am going, you cannot come. I will depart from you. Not only in his death and crucifixion, but as we've spoken about, his bodily ascension to the right hand of the Father, laying down his own life for his sheep and ascending to his Father's right hand. And he also tells them in verse 28 that not only will he go away, but that he will come again to them, not rebuking them in their ignorance, but comforting them in their sorrow, consoling and comforting the grief of his disciples. And it's almost as if he's saying, if you love me, there's no need for you to be sad, (laughs) If you love me, there's no need for you to be sad. If you only believed what I had been saying to you, what I have been teaching you, you would see that your worldly cares and your earthly fears would vanish. And that joy would take the place of your sorrow. That my departure from you is not a cause for you to fear or to be troubled Actually, quite the opposite. It is a cause for you to rejoice. But we might ask ourselves this morning, why? How could Christ departing from them be a cause for joy? Why does he say that this is cause for rejoicing? Well, because our Lord ultimately knew what he was about to accomplish, what he was about to do. He was about to accomplish their salvation. He was about to accomplish their redemption. He was going to pour out the promise of the Holy Spirit. He was going to be exalted as the glorified Son of Man, as the last Adam, as the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, who would first suffer and then enter into his glory. Or as he summarizes here in verse 28, he was going to the Father. This is a summary of the entire work of our Lord's salvation and redemption for his people. And so we see that our Lord ultimately points his disciples to this coming glory ahead. He says these things in verse 28. He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. That he gives the disciples here a reason for their hope, a reason to be comforted. And he says this in these words, because I am going to the Father. 
Now, as we look at these words, there should be this kind of feeling that creeps up in us, right? And these questions should start to run through our mind. How can the Son of God go to the Father, right? How can the Son of God go to the Father that He is co-eternal with? Or as we've spoken about in John 14 already, we talked about this idea of the Son dwelling in the Father and the Father dwelling in the Son. Jesus says in John 14, 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. How can the Son return to the Father who indwells Him and is indwelt by Him in perfect Trinitarian unity? What does Jesus mean when He says, I am going to the Father? Doesn't this contradict what we believe about the doctrine of the Trinity? Did the Son somehow leave the Trinity for a period of time in His incarnation and then return back at the end of His ascension? Well, the answer is no, right? But how do we understand these things? Well, the answer to these questions is to understand the doctrine of the incarnation, the glory of the incarnation and our two-natured Redeemer. That because the eternal Son of God assumed in the incarnation our very nature, both body and soul, he is able to say he is going to the Father without contradicting what we believe about the doctrine of the Trinity. He's not returning to the Father that he previously left, but rather he is going to the Father according to his human nature to be exalted at the right hand of the Father as the second and last Adam, accomplishing everything that the first Adam failed to do, entering the eternal glory of God, not just in His death, but in His ascension. Not just in His sufferings, but in His glory, as the gospel so frequently remind us of. I love what John Gill said here. His glorification would secure theirs. The Son of God would be glorified in His resurrection and in His ascension, and His glorification would secure theirs. He goes on, as sure as He lived in glory, so sure should they, right? His entrance into glory guarantees the glorification of all his people in the final resurrection and the end of all things. And so this is why his disciples, and by implication us, have good reason to rejoice at his going away and should be comforted by his departure because his departure was to accomplish these things. And that leads us to our second point this morning, the glory to come. The glory to come that our Lord here lifts the eyes of the disciples. He lifts their drooping heads and points them to the glory that is to come. That so often in our own lives we experience this, and we can see it here in the disciples, that the eyes of the disciples have begin to, tr- begin to drift downward and inward. <laughs> The disciples have stopped looking to the things of God and they've started looking to their earthly circumstances. They're looking to the things of the earth, the things that can be seen. This is why they're troubled. This is why they're afraid. This is why they're fearful. They're looking at their present condition and their worldly circumstances. But our Lord here, He points their eyes to heaven. He points their eyes not downward and inward, but upward 
and outward. He draws their gaze toward heaven, towards the things that are unseen, and towards the glory that is to come. We read this in verse 28. He says, I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus here is speaking to his disciples about his coming exaltation and glorification at the Father's right hand in heaven and in glory, not according to his divine nature, but according to his human nature. That these words here of our Lord, the Father is greater than I, as we've already said this morning, have caused much trouble in Christianity. Maybe you have come across this passage in your own study and you've started scratching your head. What does it mean that the Father is greater than Christ when he says the Father is greater than I? What does this mean? And as Trinitarians, how are we to understand these things? Is Jesus saying that the Father is greater than the Son in his very being? Does this mean that the Son is somehow lesser in glory or authority than the Father? Is the Father worthy of more worship because He is greater? These are all questions that might pop through our head, right, as we're looking at this passage. And on the surface, it appears that it's saying that. (laughs) The words simply say, the Father is greater than I. Isn't this what the Bible says? And sadly, Many of us know that this passage in particular has been used as a proof text for all sorts of errors, both old and new. Not only in the early church, but sadly even today. Arminianism, as we spoke about, is this teaching that the Son was created. That the Son was created, and Arius himself would point to verses like John 14, 28 to prove this point. There were the subordinationists in the 4th century that said the Son is subordinate to the Father. But these, these errors did not remain in those centuries. They continue today. We have the present error of EFS or ESS, the eternal functional subordination of the Son. Those are big words that essentially these people are teaching that the Son eternally submits to the Father and that the Father has greater authority than the Son. But as we read this morning in the Athanasian Creed, what we believe about God is very important. What we believe about who God is is very important. It is not a trite or insignificant thing. We can disagree about things like eschatology or baptism, but we cannot disagree about who God is. And so what we see in this passage is a very maybe confusing phrase on the surface. And so how do we understand these words of our Lord? What does he mean when he says, the Father is greater than I? And the answer again is the incarnation. The answer again is the glory of our two-natured Redeemer, who is both divine and human, very God and very man. That because the Son of God took on flesh, as we read in John chapter 1, He can say, the Father is greater than I, without contradicting the doctrine of the Trinity. Not with respect to His divine nature, which is 
the same as the Father's, not with respect to his person, which is co-equal with the Father, not with respect to time, for one did not begin to exist before the other, and not with respect to authority, because as we confessed in the Athanasian Creed, none is greater and none is before, but according to his human nature. That our Lord can say, the Father is greater than I, because the Son took on flesh. He took on a created nature that, as Hebrews tells us, was made lower than the angels for a period of time. That our Lord here is in His state of what we call humiliation. His sufferings, His grief, His sorrow, His poverty, His pain. He was about to go to the cross. He was about to suffer a brutal death on a Roman wooden cross. But here in this passage, he is looking forward to his state of exaltation and glory and the accomplishment of salvation. And he is pointing his disciples to these heavenly realities, to the heavenly glory that is yet to be revealed. He's telling them essentially, there is greater glory ahead. There's greater glory to come. The Father is greater than I, and I am going to him and I will accomplish the redemption that I promised. Don't look to the things of this earth, but look to heaven, despite the difficult and trying circumstances you are currently facing. And this is why he can say these words, not because the Son is lesser or somehow gave up his divinity in the incarnation, but because he was not yet glorified and exalted according to his human nature. He had not yet sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven as the second and last Adam that entered glory for us and for our salvation, defeating all of our spiritual enemies. And that leads us this morning to our third and final point, the conquering of Satan. The conquering of Satan. We see that our Lord here in these final verses is pointing his people to these heavenly realities, not for no purpose, but as we read in verse 29, so they may believe, so they may have faith, so that they might trust in him because he knows that his hour is approaching and is now here. We read these things in verses 29 through 31. He says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. I love what Sinclair Ferguson pointed out about these final words, that there's almost military language in here of rising and going to battle. He said the last battle, in a sense, has begun. That because the ruler of this world is coming, our Lord's great conflict with Satan himself is approaching. He will enter the garden of Gethsemane. He will be tested and tempted to sin and disobey his father. 
And this reaches its very climax at the cross where He undergoes the suffering and the anguish of the wrath of God, crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And ultimately, breathing His very last breath. But we see, as we look at all of Scripture, that what Satan thought was his victory over Christ was actually his own destruction and demise. Because this Adam, this son of man, would not fail the test put before him. That Christ, as the incarnate second and last Adam, would also be tested in a garden just as Adam was tested, except he will succeed crushing the head of the serpent where the first Adam failed, doing everything that the first Adam in the garden failed to do, not only by his perfect suffering and taking upon himself the hell that our sin deserved that was earned by the first Adam, but as we read in our passage, he did everything that the Father commanded. And by his perfect obedience, he therefore earns heaven for all that he represents. Yes, this Adam will keep the covenant. This Adam will pass the probation. This Adam will crush the head of the serpent, defeating Satan, and enter into eternal glory for all he represents. And this is why Jesus can say these words, that he has no claim on me. (laughs) That Satan has no claim on Christ because Christ is without sin. He is the perfect Savior, and Satan has no word against him. And we read in John 17, 4, that Christ has indeed accomplished the work that was given to him by the Father in the covenant of redemption so that the world may know the love of the triune God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ for unworthy and undeserving sinners. This is what Christ is speaking about. And so as we walk away from this passage this morning, the first thing we need to see, and it should be readily clear as we've spoken about these things this morning, is we need to see desperately the glory of the Incarnation. We need to see the glory of the Incarnation and our two-natured Redeemer that the eternal Son of God really and truly assumed our nature, both body and soul. And that apart from this truth, apart from this reality, there is no salvation. I love what Gregory of Nazianza said. He said, that which he does not assume, he cannot redeem. That which he does not assume, he cannot redeem. That if Christ did not really take to himself our very nature, both body and soul, then he could not redeem it. He had to stand in our place and do everything that we could not. He had to become like us in every way, humbling himself, not by giving up his divinity in the incarnation, but by taking on to himself the form of a servant. As we read this morning in Philippians chapter 2, and even becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that because of this, you see this two structure, 
that because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is why the disciples should have rejoiced. (laughs) And this is why you and I can rejoice because the eternal Son of God really and truly took upon Himself our nature. And not only that, He accomplished everything that we could not. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father. He poured out His Spirit upon His church. He accomplished redemption. And He has entered glory for us and for our salvation. But the second thing we need to see this morning is the importance of creeds and confessions. The importance of creeds and confessions in the life of the church. Not as infallible rules above Scripture, but as subordinate guides to help us interpret Scripture. That I think there's often a kind of common misconception about the early creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, right? These are big words. What do these, what do these things mean? And I think our misconception about them is that as they were forming these statements, that these men were just inventing new doctrines, that they just came to the re- these realities like, oh, the doctrine of the Trinity, it's not found in Scripture. These men must have invented it. Or the full deity of Christ, that's not taught anywhere in Scripture. These men simply just invented these things. But the truth is, is that the creeds of the first five centuries were not inventing new doctrines, but rather stating publicly and clearly what the church had always believed and refuting and rejecting the heretical and errant doctrine that others had invented. Because we see in church history that the first major errors of the early church were focused on these two truths, the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ and his full divinity. And the heretics would use these very verses to support their error and to support their false teaching. Arius would use this verse to say, the son is a creature, he's a created being. He's not God. The subordinationists would use this verse to say the Son is superior to the Father. And they would point to passages of Scripture and say, well, we just believe the Bible. They would say, we're just believing what the Scripture teaches. But what happened in the early church is that they got together and they said, this is not what Scripture teaches. This is not what Scripture is saying. And this is not what the church has believed. And this is why we read things in the Nicene Creed that says the Son is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. And as we read in the Athanasian Creed this morning, that in the Trinity, none is before and none is greater or lesser, directly confronting what the heretics had said. And these public statements of what the church believed were meant to be a help for believers in interpreting God's Word and protecting against these errors and heresies. And what's so sad is that we've neglected these creeds. We've, we've pushed aside these confessions of the church. And these errors have crept their way back into the church. They've not subsided in the 5th century, but continue today, even among conservative, Bible-believing, and even Calvinistic Christians. 
I've heard things said like this, that the Son in the incarnation laid aside His divinity and His divine attributes. I've heard others say that the Father is greater in authority than the Son, and that the Son eternally submits to the Father, and the Father alone deserves ultimate glory and worship. These things should trouble us. And I've been to local pastors' fellowships where these views were not only held and supported, but defended by local pastors. These things are not just in the seminary or in books, but they're, they've invaded their way into local churches. And I say this not to say, look at us or anything like that. We've all probably held views like this, me, myself, um, years before this. But I say this to show how prevalent these views are and to show us just how far our doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Christ have drifted over the last couple centuries. And that we need to get back to these historic creeds and confessions that help us defend and uphold the truth. We need to get back to Nicene Trinitarian Orthodoxy. As we sang this morning, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That God who is simple, He's not composed of parts. He simply is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. None is greater, none before. And the, and the creeds can help us do this. And lest we think that somehow we are avoiding these truths, I love what Carl Truman said. He said, Christians are not divided between those who have creeds and confessions and those who do not. Rather, they are divided between those who have public creeds and confessions that are written down and subject to public evaluation and critique and those who have private creeds and confessions that are not open to public scrutiny, that are not susceptible to evaluation, and ironically are not subject to testing by Scripture to see whether they are true. So we can't avoid having creeds and confessions. The question is, are they public? Are they written down? Are they able to be evaluated and tested against Scripture? Because the truth is, these doctrines are not harmless right? They strike at the very doctrine of God and our view of Christ. They lead us to picture a son who is somehow less than the divine, who gave up his divinity in his incarnation, or to picture somehow that there's three wills in God submitting to each other in this kind of social Trinitarianism or tritheism. That's not what we believe, and the creeds help us preserve and promote this truth. They protect us against these errors, and they ultimately point us back to Scripture as our final authority. So we need to, we need to see the importance of creeds and confessions in the life of the church. We need to see the glory of the incarnation. But finally this morning... As believers, as those that are gathered together this morning that live this side of heaven, thirdly and finally, we need to see the promise and the promise of eternal glory. The promise of eternal glory. That we need to look to Christ this morning and the glory that is ahead. We need to look this morning to the things of heaven where Christ is and the promise of a greater glory that we so often, like the disciples, fix our eyes on the things of the earth. Our present circumstances, what can be seen, 
instead of looking to the greater glory that is to come, the glory of heaven. And we see in this passage that Jesus points us to these heavenly realities and ultimately to himself as our greatest source of joy and comfort despite our current circumstances. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He says, It was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. It was for the joy that was set before him. This is why Paul can say in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory." (laughs) This is the hope we have in Christ. This is our source of joy and comfort despite our earthly circumstances. Because we all know as believers, it is true that in this life we will face difficulties. We will face trials and tribulations. Our faith will be tested. Our beliefs will even be persecuted by this world. We will face sadness and even deep sorrow as the disciples faced, even to the point where it appears that all hope is lost, where our earthly circumstances seem unbearable, where it appears the world and its system are winning and delighting in the destruction of God's people. But our Lord this morning comes to us just as he comes to the disciple and he speaks to us these words of comfort and he points us to these greater promises that even though we will face sadness and sorrow in this life, our deepest sorrows will be turned to joy. And in John 16, a couple chapters later, he speaks to his disciples and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. (laughs) That's the promise we have in Christ this morning, that he will give us his perfect peace. He will give us joy and no one is able to take it from us. Brothers and sisters, this is the joy and comfort we have in Christ. This is the promise of a greater glory to come, the glory of heaven, the glory of the triune God, an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading. 
Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs it all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And we sing about this in our great hymns, as we already sang this morning in Abide With Me. We sing, Hold Thou Thy Cross Before My Closing Eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. May we look to the glory of Christ this morning. May we look to the glory of heaven. May we look to the glory of the triune God and the glory of his eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your infinite grace and glory that we who are sinners and did not deserve an ounce of your mercy and grace, you have poured out on us in the person and work of your Son, grace upon grace. That because of his finished work, because of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his current session at the right hand of the Father, we have hope this morning of a greater glory to come and a glory that is begun even in our hearts by the regeneration of the Spirit. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that as we are consumed with a world that seeks to destroy your truth, seeks to destroy your people, that causes us great sorrow and anguish and pain, May we be reminded of your promise that our sorrow will be turned to joy and that no one can take that joy from us. Help us this morning to see these things, to gaze into heaven itself as we hold on to these promises, knowing that our inheritance is in heaven. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading, and it's kept in heaven for us. May we be reminded of these things this morning, and may we look to Christ even now. We pray all these things in His name. Amen.